Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. one of the things that I like to invite them to think about uh, is the five major areas that, that regularly surface as conflictual areas. The top two cited for divorce, as you might imagine, are money and sex, which we'll talk about next. But the others are basic personality differences, like which is at the core of Michael's question with the irreconcilable differences. Um, uh, uh, parenting differences. How are we going to parent our children? And then uh, in-law uh, conflicts generated as a result of in-laws. Uh, so I want them to think about, okay, given where you're at, where, where, which of those five, or are there some others, but which of those five might be problematic? And do we need to spend some time working through some of that as, as we go? Um, increasingly with the helicopter parent generation in-law differences are bubbling to the surface as regular 
um, disruptors of marriages. They're not, they're not anywhere near yet money and sex, but they're closing fast on a primary cited cause for uh, marital discord and divorce. Because parents just can't let their kids be married without interference. So, and kids don't want them to. They want them to come and help them and bail them out and be the referee and so on, which tends to create some tensions. All right, so the next one is uh, money and conflict relative to that. So problems with money, uh, expectations um, that are not known or not communicated. So what... Uh, um, are your expectations as a newly married couple? Do you need to have matching? Do you need to, ha- uh, you know what I mean by matching? Do you need to have furniture? What kind of furniture do you need to have? Uh, and the, the reason we pick on that, obviously, is because setting up their first apartment is often the first time they've had to push into the ways that the other one handles money. So I like to start off this conversation by saying, in three months or two weeks or whatever it is, whenever your wedding is, the person that you're sitting beside will have full, legally protected access to all of your financial resources. How do you feel about that? And you can sometimes watch deer in the headlights. It's like, oh, my God. Uh, that's going to be a challenge because he or she, they don't, they, typically I'll have one who's a saver and one who's a spender, right? And the spender is often not spendthrift. It's just that he's never or she's never had to save. Um, well, I'll, a comment that I'll often get, well, I never used to be a saver, but now that we're working on wedding, I've had to learn how to do this and I discover I really like it. Okay, that's good. So I want them to think about what their expectations are about debt, about credit, about um, um, uh, what, what is an appropriate, what do we think about budgeting, what do we think about. So a half dozen topics uh, that, that invite them into a consideration. Uh, sorry, Jude was, uh, okay, that's all right, different thing. Um, so what are their expectations in terms of uh, savings uh, and, and, you know, whatever the topics are? So the f- first one is uh, to get them to start to talk about about their expectations. Do you are you expecting to have in six months what it took your parents 30 years to acquire? Because there are people that will lend you enough money to enable you to do that. The problem is that neither of you at 21 or 22 have any taste. You think you do. You know what you like, but you don't have any taste. So you'll buy something, and in four years you'll look at each other and say, why in the world did we buy that? Or one of you really has a highly refined, and the other one doesn't know what he or she likes. But, oh, well, your strong opinion. That takes some time. Um, then uh, different meanings are attached to money by men and women. Typically, women view money as being about security. Men, on the other hand, view money as being about freedom. These obviously are challenging to put together. 
so how do we how do we work through that? Um, then, with the expectations, is the inability, and this is where people get mostly into trouble, uh, is the inability to delay gratification, which leads to debt. And debt, hands down, bar none, is the single largest and most difficult weight a marriage has to carry. Uh, debt that both bring in and debt that they eat, eat, either one acquires. Uh, the average consumer debt of a couple newly married with school loans is approaching fifty to sixty thousand dollars. And school loan debt does not go away. Unless you die. That's the only way you can... You, it, it survives bankruptcy. You know. So, and when you get married, you acquire full legal responsibility for your spouse's school loan debt. So, debt is a huge issue uh, and creates pressure on every level of a marriage. And disables a lot of the freedom that you might want and disables a lot of the security that you might want. Uh, so, so those are the challenges. Can we say no to ourselves long enough to get on the other side of the eight ball? Or are we going to be continually pushing the rock up the hill and letting it slide down? Uh, so I ask couples, what, what do you think about debt? And inevitably they'll say, oh, I hate it, I hate it. Okay, are there any debts that you would be willing to acquire? What are, the, what are the parameters? What's good debt for you? Oh, buying a house or buying a car or whatever. Okay, so what's your plan in case there's a medical emergency? Oh. I notice that both of you live in a different state than your parents do. What if your dad has a heart attack? How do you plan to get back to the hospital? Oh. Well, just put it on the card. So that's good debt then. Uh, and all I'm trying to do, people don't get into debt consciously. They get into debt for all of the right kinds of reasons. And principally because they haven't planned to not get into debt. They haven't said no to themselves so they can put stuff aside so that they can pull from their savings to buy the airline ticket or to cover the emergency surgery, or to fix the car, or to put a first and last down on an apartment, or whatever. Uh, and so debt becomes the, the, the go-to. One of the things that you've discovered is that cash spends differently than plastic does. The brain sensors, the brain chemistry, when you spend cash, is it triggers the pain sensor. When you spend plastic, it triggers the pleasure sensor. So plastic is inevitably reinforcing. And I mean, you know, if you make the minimum payment on a credit card, you'll never get out of debt, which is there. And you'll pay three times for that item that was on for 20% off. You know, in a month, if you don't pay it off, it's not on sale anymore. <laughs> right? 
So can you use debt wisely? And this, of course, is why I encourage, and I've got them listed here, you know, Total Money Makeover, Dave Ramsey, Financial Peace University, somebody that will give a system for helping people work through this. So the strategy to manage debt is stewardship, and this is a common practice uh, that Ramsey and Mary Hunt and various others designate, develop a, a plan where you put 10% of money away before you even see it, uh, 10% are given, uh, and for me that's the mark of stewardship. I think it's really helpful that we, I take advantage of the pre-marriage environment to talk about why God asks for this, and the point is that God is not asking you for 10%, he's giving you 90% of what is already 100% his. Uh, stewardship is not what am I going to do with my money stewardship is what am I doing with God's money and so tithing is just a simple way of no strings attached I recognize this isn't mine and there are other reasons we give but from this standpoint that's a helpful one and then saving 10% um, until that builds up to somewhere between 6 and 9 months um, living expenses uh, and living in the meantime on the 80%. So can you live beneath your means? If not, then you're going to be challenged by this. The average American now living now lives at between 100 and 102% of his or her annual income. And what makes that possible, of course, is credit. So, prescriptive budget, a budget that says uh, what you're going to spend the money on, not what we, what we did spend it on. So, not descriptive, but prescriptive. What's, uh, what are our values? And this is where having the conversation of values really becomes important. Um, and so, I typically want them to pick up Mary Hunt's book, Debt Proof Your Marriage, or Dave Ramsey's Total, Total Money Makeover, or Do Financial Peace University, I do a whole bunch more on money, uh, but if I would prefer them to do one of those two programs, even by the book, um, and, rather than because that'll go into a whole range of things that I don't have time to do. All I want to do in the, my pre-marriage conversation is talk about what actually it is that the tensions about money are are about. Questions. Okay, so the next topic is sexuality, uh, and there are the problems in sexuality are rarely uh, physical. That is, when, when marriages become sexually dysfunctional, only in 2% or so of the cases is it because of something physical that goes wrong. So 98% of the time, it's emotional, psychological relational that is sideways with sexuality and marriage. Uh, and that arises out of mistrained perspectives and attitudes. So when I talk about mistrained, I mean the way kids have grown up, the way they've been parented, the attitudes that they've had towards it. So I like to start by just asking couples, what are your attitudes? What were the attitudes modeled towards sexuality in your parents' home? What did you learn growing up? Was it was it exciting and mysterious and wonderful? Was it shameful? Was it dirty? Was it never talked about? Was it 
what were the and and those shape the attitudes of kids uh, growing up in terms of sexuality, uh, and obviously society trains those attitudes as well, uh, pretty pretty loudly and pretty vocally. Then uh, the other issue is just basic ignorance. We have a church culture that prizes virginity heading towards marriage, uh, but that does not counterbalance virginity with appropriate teaching on healthy sexuality. So now, ideally, you have two virgins who get married who have no clue, and their ignorance is often by itself enough to create sexual problems for them. Uh, unless they have developed an appropriate way of managing and dealing, dealing with this. Uh, the other piece that we do is we make virginity this kind of um, great, wonderful thing, which it is, but then we don't help people know that the loss of that is not the worst possible thing that can happen. So now we have to figure out what to do with that. So when I'm talking with my kids as they head towards this, the couples I'm doing pre-marriage with, I want to know how comfortable they feel with each other's previous histories and with where they're at in terms of these attitudes and perspectives. And this then reveals the third level of, um, of difficulty, which is a lack of communication. We don't know how to talk about this. We don't have a vocabulary with which we can speak about it. We either have high school locker room or high school biology lab. And neither of the vocabularies of those two environments seem appropriate for marital sexuality. So we don't talk about it. We don't have words to use. Uh, The other piece of this is the ignorance piece, particularly for women in uh, evangelical environments is the validity of their sexuality and uh, the, the, the learning and celebration of it. Men, um, on the other side, aren't taught a healthy sexuality either. So this becomes problematic and contributes often to a lack of sexual self-control. And with that, often a real surprise for the girlfriend who all of a sudden discovers that she has these surging, raging feelings that nobody ever told her was appropriate for a good girl to feel or experience. And because of that, she often shames herself because of the power of what she's actually feeling, which isn't, as you can imagine, very helpful. Um, And because they've not learned healthy boundaries uh, and because there's no lack no sexual self-control often sexual intimacy gets in the way of the development of those other intimacies that are necessary for healthy foundations and relationship I was dealt with a held it had a couple that I was talking with uh, earlier this week and they are married now and on the verge of divorce they've been married for a year and a half And they got married because they were sleeping together and somebody told him that he needed to make it right. So they got married. And no pre-marriage counseling, no friendship that supports the thing. And now it's going sideways. 
Um, then the loss of trust and respect that occurs, especially if there's pornography in the picture on either side or masturbation is a major factor on either side. Increasingly, that's becoming an issue with women as much as it is with men, has been with men. Uh, and that loss of trust and respect, as you might imagine, disables healthy sexual intimacy at pretty profound levels. Um, and then uh, the objectification of the other, of the partner. I uh, have, uh, is it okay for me to lust after my husband or wife? And the short answer is no. Because lust, by nature, is a depersonalization. It's an objectification of the other, and that is the last thing you want to occur. So this is what makes me anxious about all of these hipster pastors posting about their hot wives or whatever that is creates an inevitability of objectification depersonalization that that attraction is wonderful desire is wonderful but lust by definition reduces this person to an object the goal of which is uh, my own um, uh, sexual satisfaction and then the final one is the misuse of power in terms of sexuality so um, females tend to use sexual power manipulatively. Males tend to use sexual power uh, dominatingly. So those are some of the issues that surface in married sexuality. Married sexuality is very, very challenging, especially Christian married sexuality. It's much more difficult than people think uh, if they, all they learn is their movies or all their experiences is their previous dating relationship. Married sexuality is way more challenging and difficult than pre-married sexuality uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is they don't go home at the end of the day. So questions or comments on any of that? Yeah. Do you, have you found any books or any? Yes. You know, thing that you can point to and say this is a great Honest, open. The book that I have just yeah, probably last year or so is a book called Sheet Music by uh, Kevin Lehman, L-E-M-A-N. And he is a Christian psychologist out of Phoenix, really funny, really disarming, very blunt, very forthright, almost alarmingly so. I don't want couples to be doing a lot of reading in it before they get married. But it's a, uh, and I'll have them talk about expectations in their marriage, uh, but I'll want them to talk about it like at a Starbucks because once they start to talk about what are your expectations for the wedding night, that starts because a lot of dysfunction starts then. I have these expectations, but I'm not telling you what they are. And they're often shaped by TV or movies rather than by real life, right? So the biblical perspective, any, any other questions? So the biblical perspective is threefold, and you've got all this on the Love, Sex, uh, God series that we talked about, was procreation, uh, having children, uh, as a major biblical category, separating sexual intercourse from the possibility of pregnancy changes the nature of sexual intercourse because it disables the necessity of covenant commitment. It, it disconnects intercourse from responsibility. 
So I tell people, don't have sex with somebody who you wouldn't trust to raise your children. Uh, don't, ha- don't have sex with somebody who is not previously committed to you without it. Uh, because this will change. And, and birth control, while a great benefit in many cases for delaying pregnancy, also damages sexuality because it enables women to be as irresponsible sexually as men have always been able to be. And that's not good training for healthy sexuality in marriage. Procreation is one, pleasure is the other. God invented it. He is not at all bothered by men and women enjoying uh, sexual relationships uh, and maximizing it. As you know, Song of Solomon is built to that end uh, and, and, and spends a lot of time on it. And then the other one is the goal here is to build intimacy. Um, so how do I... Male and female, boys, men and women are are among the only members of creation that naturally engage in sexual intercourse face-to-face. Most of the rest of creation is front-to-back. So that face-to-face, being-to-being connection, I think is something God had in mind when he invented uh, human sexuality, that it's a oneing that is taking place with orgasm, And the brain chemistry that is bonding at that moment is as powerful as the brain chemistry that bonds mother to nursing child. Very, very powerful. And it's intended to be unique and and once for a lifetime. Um, Now, if it isn't, I want to know about that because now I need to help them learn... Okay, what are the implications of the fact that one or both of you have had partners before this one? What are the implications of the fact that your relationship has had a fairly substantial sexual component to it? Because that will show up in, in your relationship. And I, I, I'm not interested in shaming anybody. I just want to know so that I can help ameliorate its effects. Um, Fundamental differences uh, in, uh, between men and women, uh, response over time. So on the left, we have response. On the bottom, we have time. This line here is orgasm. The male sexual response, you'll notice, begins above the line most of the time. Uh, that's because for men, visual stimulation is the way we're hardwired. So relationship is unnecessary. Attraction um, intimacy, not necessary, a billboard in the 605 freeway, um, somebody on TV, doesn't mean we need to do anything about any of that. It's just that that has an attractional component to it. If the male sexual response is stimulated physically in anywhere between 5 and 10 or 15 minutes, he can achieve orgasm, and then the fall-off period immediately following that is about as steep, and uh, it, it's over. Uh, the female sexual response, however, is rather different. Uh, most women begin below the line most of the time. And this is because while for men nothing affects sexual response, for women everything does. And I should say, when I say women or men, I'm talking about between 80-85%. There are 15-20% to 20% of men who are... Uh, affected by everything in terms of their sexual response and roughly the same number of women 
who are uh, visually stimulated and whose sexual response is parallel to what uh, men's would be. However, um, and because women's is relational and orientational, emotional and orientation, uh, it, it is affected by everything. So if they've had a hard day at work, if they're tired, if they had to lay somebody off, if they had a conflict with an employee, if, they, if the house isn't clean, if there's company coming tomorrow, anything and everything uh, can affect uh, female sexual response. Whereas almost nothing affects male sexual response. House can be burning down and it's all, we, we got 10 minutes. Come on, let's, we can do this. That's not ends up being very helpful. So as you can tell, we've got a fairly substantial problem, and this is where the Genesis 1-2 model of mutual submission kicks in. Uh, the male sexual response can be slowed down. The female sexual response generally cannot be sped up. In fact, the harder we work to speed it up, the less likely it is to be engaged. Most women... 75% uh, in a couple of surveys said if they had to choose between foreplay and afterglow and orgasm, they would choose the nurturing sides, the intimacy side over the high power sexual response side. Not that this doesn't mean as much to women as it does to men. It's just that this is way more important to them at the nurturing comfort engagement level. So what that suggests, because this can't be slowed down, the Genesis model suggests that men need to put aside their preferences, aside what comes naturally, submit themselves to their wife's sexual drive, and take care of her first, as a general rule, then their own sexual needs will be taken care of. So that's the Genesis model. And in addition to those, there are fundamental differences in time. The male sexual response tends to want to get around the bases as quickly as possible, with orgasm being a home run. Female sexual response, which is as powerful, and this is one of the things that the new research is indicating, is that female sexual response is as powerful as male. Uh, it's just that it had, has been uh, uh, trained to dullness by inattention, right? Uh, and and so so the gift of women to men is training in relational sexuality. The gift of men to women is training in playful sexuality. Because for women, uh, we maybe start off the same way, but then we take a sideways turn. And then maybe we'll spend a little bit of time in the outfield. And then maybe we'll go to the second bit. And then maybe we'll go back over here a bit. And then maybe over to there. And then maybe 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 to there. And it's different every time. Because everything affects female sexuality. So a husband who is not patient with his wife's sexuality this time will tend over time not to be very satisfied with the sexuality of their marriage. And by over time, I mean within six months. So I, I want to talk to them about that. So what's the strategy? Genesis 1-2. Attend first to your partner's intimacy needs before you attend to your own. Lay your own aside in service of hers. 
attend first to your partner's pleasure. It's okay to communicate your desires. What do I want? But then set them aside. Set them aside. Time. Yep, or permanently. Because it might be that her level or his level of sexual response means... I don't know if I can ever do that. And I'm talking now about varying positions or various sexual expressions. Oral sex, for example, is popularized by the pornographied culture that we live in. And it is very possible that one of the partners just doesn't feel comfortable with that. So it's okay to say this would be really cool, but then I set it aside and I'm not, I'm not willing to force anything because to do so would be to damage our intimacy, which is way more important to me than having that need met or desire met. Um, and then don't take anything personally. So if he has a headache or she has a headache or using that euphemism, that, it's not about you. So don't take it personally. Right? It might be that, that's a, that you haven't paid enough attention to build intimacy over time because that for women... Sex begins at 8 o'clock in the morning by taking out the trash. And if you don't attend to that, because everything affects female sexuality, don't be surprised if at 10 o'clock at night, when you're ready for romance, she's ready to pack it in. You haven't paid attention. You haven't built the fire. So you've got to pay attention to times and timing and build appropriate intimacy over time. So this for women is 75-80% is conversation, is romance, is time, is learning each other's bodies. So I tell, when I talk about the myth of the honeymoon, I'll talk to them very frankly about the fact that it's very possible that there is no worse preparation for satisfactory sexual intimacy than the 48 hours immediately prior to your wedding night. You're tired. You've been with people for 48 hours straight. You've been on your feet and having fun for 12 hours today. And now you have the social pressure and sometimes personal pressure to have sexual satisfaction on your wedding night for the first time, it may be awkward and difficult. So it's not likely to happen. So why not just take that off the table as a demand or a requirement? We can communicate our expectations, our hopes, then we set them aside. Why don't we just take a shower together? Why don't we just fall asleep? Why don't we just explore the gift that we have been received in each other's body? And if intercourse occurs, great. If it doesn't, you got 50 years. You, you'll figure it out. There's no rush. And the greater the degree of rush, the more likely that one, usually the woman, will feel like she was raped on her wedding night. Even though she's not supposed to feel that way, that's what ends up happening. And that's a trajectory that is really hard to recover from. So she will do it, listen to the language, because she's supposed to. But if he has not paid attention to the unique gift he is receiving in her, then that will quickly diminish 
uh, in, in its importance to her. And in six months, it'll be as often as I have to. Which, by the way, in six months is why pornography, if it's been an issue, starts to come back into the picture. Uh, while, why tools and techniques and toys and creams and videos and whatever start to come back in. Well, let's spice this up. No. Let's start to rebuild the infrastructure and intimacy socially, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, physically without being sexual. That will have the outcome that we're after. Questions or comments on any of this? Often, when you're doing pre-marriage counseling, there needs to be a willingness to talk about some of these areas with newlyweds because they really only have their friends, which are less than helpful, uh, to talk about with this, including their married friends. Because here's the thing. Nobody is married to their friends. They're always only married to each other. So that couple's sexual relationship is different than yours. The pornographication of the culture has been deeply damaging to marital sexual satisfaction because people use the images of pornography as the model for what normal is. It's not normal. So for years I was dealing with women who felt that they may be unattractive to their husbands because their bodies weren't look like that. I am now dealing in increasing numbers with men who have been exposed to pornography who feel they're going to be unable to satisfy their wives. This expectation and demand is huge and it's hugely problematic. The truth is you only have one person to satisfy for the rest of your life. The good news is you're married to the expert in that person. So learn her, learn him. Take the time to do that hard, hard work in converse. It shifts and changes over time. Sexuality and marriage shifts with work schedules, with children, with financial responsibilities, and so on. That's why married sexuality is very, very different than pre-married sexuality. Okay. Next is spiritual intimacy, uh, the most difficult and often the least likely to have been achieved. The first reason is because in order for us to be spiritually intimate, i.e. know and be known, each of us has to have a thriving individual spirituality that is not dependent on the other. And if one does and the other doesn't, there will be likely no spiritual intimacy. So both of us have to have a healthy walk with God and continue in that in order for there to be the overlap. So I'll ask, how do each of you feel about the other's walk with God? What are the evidences that you are seeing that they really do have a thriving spirituality? Do you feel comfortable with the other as a disciple of Jesus? This is a great opportunity for evangelism for couples that are, or discipleship for couples that are struggling with this. Then, because spirituality is deeply unique, um, um, no two spiritualities are likely ever to be the same. And, and what that means often is there is an almost inevitably of comparative or judgmental spirituality. So I'll have wives whose spirituality is a general, forgive the 
the uh, stereotype, but it's generally the case that female spirituality tends to be a bit more emotional. That then becomes the standard, and because he doesn't cry or because he doesn't sing or because he doesn't have these deep emotional encounters with God, his spirituality somehow is less than. Uh, but she wants him to be the spiritual leader. But she wants him to be the spiritual leader in the ways that she tells him he needs to be the spiritual leader. Okay, we got a problem, Houston. That doesn't work really well, right? Uh, so rather than letting his and hers be unique and individual without judgment or comparison, honoring and valuing, one of them feels less than and so now ceases to share very deeply. Because if, if I feel judged by you, I'm not going to tell you what my walk with God looks like. Then there's a survival spirituality that occurs with an individual who has... Um, um, develop spirituality as the safest place in their life in a traumatic situation. The church or Jesus or God has been the safest place for them. Prayer has been a place of refuge. And I don't want to risk letting you into that part of my, my life. So they will rarely feel comfortable praying together. They will rarely feel comfortable reading or studying the Bible together. They'll, you do it. You do that fine. I'll sit here while you do that, but I'm never going to let you in to mine. So spirituality, spiritual intimacy is compromised. And then there is a heroic spirituality that contributes to this. And this I find a lot in the uh, evangelical Pentecostal subculture that we minister in, where people feel, no, we've got to study the Bible together. We've got to pray together. We've got to do intense things together and the more heroic the less likely it is to be authentic and therefore intimate so we just need to create space for each individual's journey and let it be what it is uh, and and honor it so the strategy here is pretty basic let each one have their own spirituality and then share small together without judgment so, no heroics, we start small, we read a passage of scripture, we don't talk about it, maybe we just let the word dwell richly in our hearts, we carry it with us through the day, maybe we'll come back at lunchtime or at dinner time and talk about how that word impacted us or didn't. Uh, it's seed planting more than it's anything else. The harder you work at it, uh, the greater the likelihood that it won't work. So, real gentle real organic, real small, let the little spark, little fan start to flame. Um, then maybe at some point you can read a book together or take a retreat together, uh, share together. What are you hearing? A um, couple that I've walked with over the years uh, loves to do shared retreats. So they'll each buy a book that they'll do on a retreat. They'll each read it a chapter at a time and underline and notate, whatever, then they'll trade and talk about what was this important to you? Why did you underline that? Why was that? And the goal is not judgment, it's understanding. Creating space for the other's journey. Um, worshiping together matters, but each one allowed to worship in a way that's appropriate to them. So we create space. If you're a singer and you're not married to a singer... 
then both of you need to create space for that journey. So uh, I need to uh, let hers or his be what it is. And then the other one that's really, I think, most effective is serving together, teaching a Sunday school class or going on a missions trip or, or doing something in hospitality and watch how the other spirituality informs uh, the, 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 the way of their walk with Jesus. And then finally, to invite Jesus to teach you each other. Uh, which is because he knows. He knows the other better than they know themselves. So I want to have that awareness. So, any questions on spiritual intimacy? Yes. Exactly right. Yep. And nowhere as much as in spirituality is that damage intimacy. Yep. And unfortunately, we do have an evangelical subculture that defines male and female roles in specific ways that are not biblical. Like the idea of the husband being the high priest of the home or the spiritual leader of the household is not biblical. But we use that language as if it were, and nobody ever says, well, where is that in the Bible? And it's not. It's just not there. Well, I think it's from a mis-exegesis of Ephesians 5, where women are told to submit themselves to their husbands. And that as the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And nobody's ever bothered to figure out what that means. So we read that to mean, well, Christ is the boss of the church. He's the leader of the church. He's the spiritual authority of the church. And like that, then husbands need to be that way to their wives. But that's not what Christ, it means for Christ to be the head of the church. It, the parallel is not head as in to organization, it's head as in to body. So it's an organic, connected union of mutual support and submission that enables that. That's the relationship between husbands and wives, not CEO to worker bee. Yeah. I did not mention it. That's really helpful. Uh, and and it, obviously it works itself out in all of these dimensions. And assuming a, an environment of trust, it can be really, really helpful uh, to bring your story to one another and let them in uh, with covenant. But again, if you have a marriage that is built on cooperation... As a conflict resolution model, that can really be helpful. If you have one built on compromise or co competition, that'll be a problem. 
because confession gives that other individual weapons, potentially. Uh, And then the question is, can you, having received confession, genuinely and uh, completely forgive and release without remainder? Or is this going to show up even subconsciously in your treatment of one another? I find confession tends to work better with a disinterested third party who can pronounce absolution and, and whatnot. If the confession is necessary because the damage is between the parties, that's when it's really, really most necessary and helpful because it's fundamental to forgiveness. That's the intimacy piece that we want to risk. Yeah. And, and, and is there a healthy kind of solitude and mystery in marriage? And that ties back in perhaps to sexuality. And, yeah. And not by keeping intimacy from becoming enmeshed. In yeah. It, it, you're asking exactly the right questions, and and I I don't I don't even know I think you're I struggle with the same language right tension is the word the only thing I can come with. Because I want to know and I want to be known. But in order to do that, I have to have appropriate boundaries. Otherwise, there's nobody there. Right? I have to know where I end and you, you begin in order for that to actually be legitimately intimate. Uh, and and Nouwen, for example, writes about uh, absence that enables intimacy. That I, I, I know the other. Remember in, uh, what was it? Um, uh, he does it there, but he also did it in one that I asked you to look at way back in the soul care class. Do you remember? Um, not wounded healer, but um, living reminder uh, is one of the factors in building, in, in walking with people. You've got to create distance for them to remember and, and file away you, so to speak. So... Um, and I, and I just think it's it's a negotiated over time with a willingness to risk. There's no clear path, I don't think. Yeah, it's real challenging and real necessary. And the problem, of course, is that the longer you're married, the more you call it in. The more you've reached a level and you just kind of go without attending to the continual development of those intimacy structures because so much of the energy of a marriage in the second or third marriage, remember we've talked about the varying marriages, so much of the energy is spent just getting kids raised and doing the work of it that that if you don't continually invest in, 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 in intimacy building, then it doesn't happen. But... That's a good segue because what had the mind in marriage is an intimacy that is transformed. He wants us to change our understanding of what intimacy is, transforming 
our knowing and being known into something that's fundamentally. But he also wants it to be an intimacy that is transformative. That because I am known fully by someone, that changes who I am. So it's the boundary and the tension. I need to be solid in who I am without reference to you, but being known by you allows me to come out and play, for example, in ways that I might not otherwise. It lets me face my fears in ways that I might not otherwise. Uh, It lets me trust in ways that I might not otherwise. So it transforms me, right? But then it also creates in culture a transformative presence in in our family, in our church, in our community. Which then ends up being a witness to the reality of Christ's self-sacrificing love. Which is why marriage, I think, is used as the symbol in Ephesians 5 of God's love for the, for the world. For the, for the world. Okay, so that's it in terms of content that I work through. Any, any questions or thoughts that you want to have that, w- that this bubbles up for you? The boatload of stuff, but... Well, you realize that the, the goal is not a happy marriage. Right. Right. right? Yeah. The goal is a transformed world, yeah. is the kingdom of God. Yeah. So it's worth the price I pay to get there. The gift that you gave me that other human beings be able to go through this together. Huge. 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 Exactly. Yep. Yeah, he's really smart. <laughs> if I do the whole thing, I'll meet with them um, six and possibly seven times for an hour each time and I usually like to have at least a week in between so we'll meet every second week so it'll take a couple of months so the first week is just get the, for me is getting to know them learning their story why did you want to get married you know what does it mean when you love say you love each other that kind of thing and that'll give me a sense of you know what do your parents think of this what do your friends think of this it's not the do all be all end all but if there's some tensions there, that I just want to start to know that. Then the second one is the theological foundation, and that for me is pretty much the non-negotiable. Even if they've done Rogers class, I want to do that one. 
Uh, Roger does some good things there. Uh, but uh, that's important to me. And then we'll do one for each of the remaining five. And usually spiritual intimacy is the shortest topic, so that's also the one uh, in which we'll talk about, if I'm doing their wedding, what that looks like. But I don't know that for marriage mentor couples that's necessarily the same level of expectation. It's, it, it is basically being available and being a resource for, for people as they start to think about, oh, these are some issues that bubbled up. I don't know. We may want to develop some conversation starters. I don't know if Roger and Becky have done that. Do you know? For their marriage mentors, do you guys in the marriage mentoring thing, have they developed like here are some topics or here are some questionnaires or? Okay. Got it. Which is a nice framework because it touches on all of these things and gives you numbers and kind of overlap. Even if they're not even self-aware, you can be like, oh, I see that we've got a conflict area here. Yeah. All right, that's it. Done and done. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.
fire. 